Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Well, I get to preach to you today, and I'll have you stand in a moment for the reading of the text. Um, you can turn there. It's going to be in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're going to just look at verses 1 through 31. Uh, but there are a few things uh, I'd like to say to preface the sermon this morning before we really dig in. Um, the first is that when I'm given an opportunity to preach, my tendency is always to preach the Old Testament. And uh, I don't preach as much as I, w- I used to, so it's only several times a year, and that's, I think, I'm always going to preach the Old Testament. And, um, and I do this because Christians are painfully ignorant of the contents of the Old Testament in most churches. I know for a long time that I was. Um, and this is a problem for some obvious reasons. Namely, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Scripture that Paul had in immediate mind when he said that was the Old Testament. Obviously, he was thinking of the New Testament as well, but the immediate scriptures he's referring to is the Old Testament. The Old Testament can do all those things. It can reprove you, it can correct you, it can train you, it can make you adequate, etc., etc., all those things. And moreover, every single New Testament book cites and builds on the revelation first found in the law and the prophets and the wisdom. All of them do that. How I remember the first time I read from Genesis to Matthew, the first time I actually did it. You know how many of us start that Bible in the year plan, and by, like, January, we're having to read, like, whole books, like the end of January, like, uh, you know. Um, well, I remember when I finally got through it, and suddenly the genealogies came alive, right? Everyone is anticipating. This was the moment from Genesis, right? The seed of Eve, right? The, the seed of, of Abraham, the son of David, all these prophecies finally came alive. I understood why the genealogies is what starts Luke and Matthew. And honestly, I mean, you go through Romans. How many times do they quote Deuteronomy and Romans? Paul, tons. We need to know the Old Testament. And I'm happy. I'd say um, that there has been a revival in Old Testament preaching, especially in the Reform world. But sadly... Um, a lot of that preaching falls into what's known as redemptive historical preaching. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, what is redemptive historical preaching? Well, simply put, it's the sort of preaching that seeks to take the text of the Old Testament and show you how it relates to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, you're thinking, what's wrong with that? And nothing in itself is wrong with that, okay? We do it here all the time. I did it in my Genesis study. I, I actually heard uh, Andrew do it in his prayer earlier. We, we, we relate the Old Testament to the redemptive work of Jesus all the time, as you should. Luke twenty four twenty seven says, this, this is on the road of Maus. Remember, uh, Jesus like talking with these guys. They don't recognize him. And then uh, he explains to them, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophet, Jesus explained to them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Right? All the scripture is pointing towards Jesus. We believe that. It's right there. We're not going to deny that. And I think um, it's obvious that Jesus is the substance of that which is being foreshadowed 
in the Old Testament. And it's good and necessary to draw that out when preaching the Old Testament. You should. However, redemptive historical preaching can be taken to an extreme that isn't helpful. And my observations uh, are similar to some that I uh, I read in an article this week by uh, John Frame, who is um, a professor that served on different reform seminaries and very, very helpful thinker. Um, He says, uh, but I get the impression that some who stress redemptive history really want to avoid practical application. They want the whole sermon to focus on Christ, not on what works the believer should do. They want it to focus on the gospel, not on law. So they want the sermon to evoke praise to Christ and not to demand concrete change in people's behavior. In their mind, Christ-centeredness excludes any sustained focus on specific practical matters. And I recall a conversation I had um, with one of these sort of extreme redemptive historical guys uh, a while back. I can't remember if it was after a sermon or a Bible study, but I had been teaching uh, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. And um, he didn't like what I taught. And uh, as I recall, I put a lot of emphasis on how David was an example of faith in the face of the enemies of God. Now, I, I think that's a pretty sound deduction from it. He is a person killing the enemy of God. So I feel okay with that interpretation. But I put a lot of emphasis on it and said, you should, you should um, emulate David. You should be like David in this way. And uh, he pushed back and he told me the passage isn't really about David slaying giants. I mean, sure, dude, there's like a dude named David and there's a giant and he kills him. I'm pretty sure that's certainly at least some of what it's about. No, 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 no. It's about Jesus, the true and better David, slaying the giant of sin on behalf of the true Israel. And I, I agree that it is in part about that. Right? I don't deny that. But he went on to suggest that any other type of emphasis or preaching would feed uh, our moralistic, legalistic tendencies, right? There's so evident in Christianity. That if I didn't make this all about the gospel, if I made this about David being an example and calling us to emulate that example, that somehow was moralism or legalism. And more often than not, this is the type of character that I see redemptive historical preaching taking on, if the sermon's punchline isn't the gospel, it's somehow moralism and dead religion. Now, if you were to go and look at my old laptop, which I discovered, my old white MacBook, it looks so ancient. I remember when I got that out, I spent all that money on it and thought it was amazing, and now it's like garbage. (laughs) We're so consumeristic. Anyway, if you were to boot it up and look at the first years of sermons that I preached when I was a church planner, I guarantee that every single title of my sermon has the word gospel in it. I guarantee it. I've been this dude, right? The gospel according to Jonah. I remember teaching that one, right? I've been this guy. And it's like everyone thinks if you put gospel on it, it somehow makes it good. And I started to see in the insanity of it all. And I remember I asked, I was at a, a pastor's conference where we're talking about gospel-centeredness. I said, hey, can I have some of that gospel coffee? Can I put some gospel cream in it? Some of my gospel sugar, you know, and I'll have my gospel pancakes. Gospel, 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 right? And it's crazy. It's this weird mantra that, that hollows out the whole of Scripture. 
Obviously, I love the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that I didn't live, died the death I should have died, to make me right with an angry, holy, righteous God, and to bring me into that family, to sanctify me, and to glorify me in heaven forever. I know the gospel, and I'm not denying it. But this is a weird forced dichotomy. Right? The gospel changes everything. It gives us a new nature with new desires along with a new source of power, the Holy Spirit. And that means we can learn from the examples in the Old Testament. We can learn from David. We can actually obey God's commandments. I talked to an alcoholic this week and I told him, you're not an alcoholic. You're a drunk. An alcoholic, you can stop. You can stop. You don't have to be a drunk anymore. But we've been so deceived into our culture's thinking about sin, right? They call them syndromes or diseases. These aren't diseases. These are choices. Is it hard? Is it hard to overcome sinful habits? It is for me, without a doubt. But this this whole that alcohol decides your destiny thing, it's not true. Especially if you're a Christian. God is in you. He's in you. So obviously we cannot perfectly keep the commandments, and certainly not for salvation, but as an act of worship with a heart that desires to please God. So I I, I totally reject this forced dichotomy between, you know, preaching redemptive and preaching the practical ethical commands of Scripture. I think they come together, obviously. Um, The Old Testament both points to the work of Christ and provides believers with many examples and commandments that encourage us in our pursuit of holiness, knowing that no one will see the Lord without holiness, right? It's in the New Testament. How about that? All these things need to be preached. And in Scripture, there is no perfect formula on how much you preach one or the other. You know, I don't know how to give it down. If you show me, well, you show me where the sermon has to be like 80% gospel, I will do my best to fine-tune the sermon to 80% gospel. Right? If you show me somewhere in Scripture that it says that, but the example we see in Scripture is a, is a mixture of both. I bring this up because this morning I'm going to give you an example that I want you to learn from. And Scripture gives us uh, good examples and bad. The, think about the cloud of witness in Hebrews 11. right? Uh, Adam did this, and Seth did that, and Noah, and all these names. By faith, they took action to glorify God. You see, faith and action joined. Faith is never by itself, right? Faith has to have an object. So as they're going through uh, Hebrews 11, sometimes we call it the hall of faith, right? All these amazing people. And, and some of them are not that amazing, like Lot. Lot makes the call. But, but he did. He did obey God by faith, right? And so they're giving, he's giving all these examples. He goes to great lengths to call them to mind um, for a reason. And that reason is made clear in Hebrews uh, 12, right right after it. Therefore, all these things, all these examples, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, all these people down through the ages, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the, endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? The examples are are meant to stir us on. You want to store those examples up. Every time I think, 
you know, things are really tough. I think about the, you know, the, the example of David, right, on the run from Absalom, hiding in a cave, and yet God protects him. And I want to have that faith. I want to trust God. Even when it's my own sin that's led me to that cave in one way or another, I want to repent and say, God's good. God took care of David. God will take care of me. But Scripture also provides us with negative examples. And these are the examples that say, don't do that, right? They're examples that serve as a warning to us. And Paul, exhorting the Corinthians, calls to remembrance those who perished in the desert after the Exodus, right? He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happen as an example for us, for us, for New Testament Christians, for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Right? Do not, don't act, don't be immoral. It goes on and on. And then he says again, now these things happen to them as an example. Um, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Right? Look at all these examples of this. Look what unbelief and lack of trust in God produces in your life. Take note. Right? You think you're doing good? You think you stand? Okay, stand. Check yourself. So we have both positive and negative, if I can use those words, um, examples in Scripture. And, uh, and so today, we're going to be looking at a negative example. We're going to be looking at Saul. And I want you to, in particular, focus on how Saul deals with being confronted about his rebellion via partial obedience. So now, if you're able, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 31. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And we're not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. That they utterly destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded down to Gilgah. 
Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel said, They've brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, it is, not, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission, uh, went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back a gag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil and sheep and oxen and the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of the robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from, your, from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please sit. It's a weighty passage. This passage really is the turning point in the life of King Saul. It's his defining moment. And it's scary to think that such moments even exist. It's a fearful thing to know that a single decision that you make can result in lifelong ramifications. This knowledge should lead us to be all the more diligent and sober when we make decisions. The life of Saul is laid out for us in Scripture. You can see all of it, really, from, well, at least all, from when he is anointed king on the way up to his, his death. And it's easy to remember him as a bad king. One that was jealous of David, uh, one that consulted with a witch, one that made a ra- rash judgments or rash vows that almost cost him the life of his son, one who was tormented by an evil spirit, and one that died at the end of his own sword by the act of self-centered suicide. But Saul didn't start that way. He actually, more or less, started out pretty well. 
In chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, Saul demonstrates humility receiving praise from the prophet Samuel. He says, uh, Saul, Saul says to Samuel, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest tribes of Israel? Am my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me this way? Why are you talking? Why are you giving me these honorific words? You know, I'm, I'm no one of consequence. And so he has a right view of himself. That's humility, right? Humility is not a low view of yourself or a high view. It's just a right view. And he knows who he is. Um, in chapter 10, it tells us that God changed his heart. God changed Saul's heart. And the spirit comes upon him and he prophesies. And in chapter 11, certain worthless men despise Saul's authority as king. And uh, we actually see Saul show mercy instead of getting drunk on power. In uh, verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. It's a good king, right? Showing some mercy. Chapter 12, Saul gives all of Israel a solemn warning. And he says, or Samuel in uh, chapter 12 says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And that's important. That's in chapter 12, because things start to go awry in chapter 13. Um, Saul is uh, engaged in a battle, and he's supposed to wait for Samuel. Um, and he waits seven days, and Samuel doesn't show up. So Saul says, bring to me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he was finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greeted him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgah, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you've acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commands. So that is where we start seeing Saul drift and not obeying. And in chapter 14, we get the Saul that we all remember probably. Uh, if, you, if you read through 1 Samuel, this is the Saul you remember. He's a divided man, right? In chapter 14, he builds an altar to the Lord. He defends the Israelites valiantly. And he makes a foolish vow that almost costs the life of a Jonathan. And there's a great expansion that happens underneath Saul. Not as great as David, but, um, but you see that he is doing some of the things that God uh, intended to accomplish to the king. And, brethren, we, we need to take heed or we could, we could end up like Saul. We could start well, but make more and more compromises along the way until there's devastating results in our life. And so don't, don't judge him so quickly. It's easy to judge people in Scripture because we know how the story ends, but your story is not over yet. You know, those of you who have been in the church for a while, how many have we seen fall to the left or right? I've had many friends that have gotten caught up in sin, and some of them it's, praise the Lord, it 
it has destroyed their ministry and their marriage, but somehow their faith came through. So praise the Lord. We'll be with them in heaven. That's wonderful. But it's, it's not ideal. You don't have to, That doesn't have to happen. But I've seen others be destroyed by their sin and completely reject God. And some of them die in unbelief. So don't judge them so quickly. Learn from Saul's mistakes in the passage and don't. Don't repeat them. By all means. In verses 1 through 3, we get God's command. And, and God's accomplishing two things in his command. First, he's testing Saul. Saul isn't his own man. He was a nobody of consequence. And all that he has was given to him by the gracious hand of God. And that's why... Um, let me turn back there for a second. And that's why uh, Samuel says, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people. Over Israel, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. He's reminding him, God made you king, right? Uh, you didn't make yourself king. So Saul may be king, but God is the king of kings. And uh, he may, uh, Saul may rule over Israel, but God rules over everyone great and small. And in chapter 14, Saul had a very small army. But now he has a very large army. It's huge. Right. It had gone from around 600 people to well over 200,000. That's, that's growth, you know. Um, he had, uh, had all sorts of military victories. Something you'll, you'll learn as you study the Old Testament is that time isn't equal between chapters. Right? Sometimes it like happens right after, and then it's, sometimes it jumps forward. But you kind of have to carefully read. Or sometimes it even takes stories. Like at the end of 2 Samuel, things that happened earlier in David's life is put at the end of the book. Uh, to remind you of something, like a callback. Um, but anyway, a lot of time has passed, and he's truly become a great king, at least how the world measures kings. Right? He's, n- he's no little tribal ruler anymore, but Israel's grown and is a real threat to those around them. But really, that is the question. Is he great? Is he a great king in the eyes of God? We know what God's looking for in a king. He's looking for someone that obeys him from the heart. So here God tests Saul by giving him a command. Will Saul obey from the heart? Is Saul truly great? We know that the world thinks he's great. But is he great in the sense that matters? This is how we have to think about all people. There's people with lots of money, lots of influence, right? Lots of connections. And we would call them great in a sense. But the the people that are up in the front row in heaven are probably people we don't know much about. Really? You? Because God doesn't look at men as we do. He looks at the heart. The second thing that God's accomplishing in his command is he's judging Amalek. God wants Amalek utterly destroyed. Everything. Men, women, children, infants. He wants all the possessions. Everything is to be destroyed. The whole earth is to be scorched in a sense. Wiped away forever. And this command is scandalous to the unregenerate, to the non-believer. And frankly, it's scandalous to many naive believers. Is this not genocide? Is this not ethnic cleansing? Does this not demonstrate that the God of the Bible is a monster? No, absolutely not. This isn't ethnic cleansing. God isn't having them killed because they come from a certain localized gene pool because they have a big nose or dark skin or anything like that. 
This simply isn't ethnic cleansing by any reasonable definition. He's killing them because they're godless and immoral and a wicked people. This is judgment. Judgment. It's about the character of their culture, not their genetics. The Amalekites, uh, Amalekites committed a great sin against God's people. As they entered the promised land, they would trail the Israelites, and they would pick off any of those that lagged behind, women, children, sick, elderly, you know, the sort of people that slow you down. We have to travel to Chicago at the end of the month, which means we will stop to use the restroom approximately 100 times. Because <laughs> we have children. And I'm, I'm part of that, too. But um, people that were uh, kind of trailing behind, they would pick them off and kill them. They had no morals in warfare. It was total war for them, everyone. Deuteronomy 25, 18 says, They had no fear of God. And God has decided it is time for them to be judged. And he's chosen Israel as his instrument. And does that offend you? Are you offended? Get over it. God is just. God is holy. And don't you dare question the character of God. Who are you, O oh man, to question the God that made you? Why do we always apologize for God? I will not apologize, and neither should you. Some of you know I get involved in all sorts of apologetic debates and things with atheists. They love to bring this up. And just say it, yeah. He was right to do it. And he'll judge you too. A day's coming when every man, woman, and child will be judged by God. He'll separate those who've been washed in the blood in Christ from those who stubbornly refuse to bow a knee to their creator. And those who have hard hearts and practice lawlessness will be condemned to eternal flames forever and ever and ever. Is that hellfire and brimstone? No, that's Bible, right? All these derogatory pejoratives used to make us feel bad about what the Bible teaches. We have such a low view of sin. It's, if you're offended, it's your problem. You don't think sin's a big deal. Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? You know, it's like a party favor. I don't, what, what do you think that's about? God's holy, perfect son died for you on the cross. It's because sin is a big deal. So if you have a problem with the Amalekites, you have a problem with the whole of Christianity. Judgment is at the heart of our religion. That's why it's so good that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. That's why it's so good that justification, that change in status from guilty to innocent, is by faith and by faith alone. That's why that's good. You take that away, you destroy the gospel, you got nothing. And you're just like a heathen. Don't bow down. Don't fall to the pressure. In verses 4 through 8, we see Saul's failure to obey. And Saul seems like he's going to do a good job, right? He gathers the people, shows mercy on the Kenites, um, or however you say it, and then attacks the Amalekites. But he fails to obey God. He only partially fulfills the command of the Lord. God's command was clear. He said, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, and infant, ox, and sheep, and camel, and donkey. But what happens? But Saul and the people spared a gag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless. That they utterly destroyed. They only destroyed the worthless stuff. 
They kept all the good stuff. There's a wicked pragmatism at work here. Why waste all this? Right? This is good. We can put it to use, right? We can use it for the glory of God and sacrifice and the good of Israel, building up the kingdom as we expand and take the land. In essence, Saul and the people are attempting to improve on the command of God. They think they know better than the Lord. This is a big waste. Don't do that. And this is the habit of so many Christians. They treat the commands of God like they're ordering a hamburger from McDonald's, right? Hold the onions, add mayo. Like they can like shape it the way, the exact way that they want it. Right? It's not set. You know, I, I guess some of you guys know I don't eat bread. So I'm always like, uh, no regular bun. I'm like, no regular bun? What do you mean? I'm like, don't, don't put it on a bun. Well, how are you going to eat it? Well, I put it, wrap it in like lettuce or something. I don't know. But, um, but I can make the hamburger any way I want it. So people think that they can mold and shape scripture to fit their desires. But God is not McDonald's. He's king and he knows better. And you must obey his commands as he gives them. There is no editing allowed. Right? There's no editing allowed. And then finally, we get to uh, verses 9 through 31. Samuel confronts Saul. And God was not pleased with Saul's disobedience. He tells Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And you may ask, how can God have regrets? Regrets imply you made a bad decision that had bad consequences that you did not foresee. And how can that be true of God? Well, the simple answer is, well, it can't be. That's the answer. Scripture is clear. Psalm 139 teaches that God knows all and foresees all. God is absolutely in control. Um, and we must always work from the clear passage of, uh, passages of Scripture to the cloudy. So God's regret, whatever it may be, is not like the regret of man. I was told that Calvin said that God was simply accommodating their minds, their finite minds. But I couldn't find the citation, so I'm not kind of suspicious that Calvin would use that word that way, but perhaps he did. I think, though, the main point you want to take away is that God's not pleased with Saul. That's the big takeaway. He's not happy. He's not the king that Israel needs. He's not a man after God's own heart. God has given him a sort of probation period, and he has failed. And Samuel was broken over God's coming judgment on Saul. Samuel had great hopes for him, so much so that he struggled in what I assume was intercessory prayer for Saul all night long. God, God's word came to Samuel, and he just couldn't sleep. He rolled and probably sweat and prayed. No, no, we can make him work, right? But Saul, like the Amalekites, had plenty of opportunities to humble themselves before the Lord, and they had not done so. And God would not heed Samuel's prayers. And brethren, do not delay humbling yourself before the Lord. One day, you might harden your hearts against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and God will never soften it again. Don't play with fire. Be quick to repent. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Samuel quickly finds out how wrong he was about Saul. In verse 11, Samuel is told that Saul has built a monument for himself. This is in... Uh, the essence, this is the essence of idolatry. I mean, I, it's hard to think of a, a better example of idolatry than this. Um, 
And Saul is seeking to make a, a name great for himself, not the Lord. Right? He's co-opting Christianity. To, you know, using the Lord to build up his name. And honestly, I'm, I'm not totally against buildings or whatever, um, having dedications on them to some godly man. But scripture says, let the lips of another praise you. And note who's building the monument here. So Saul's building a monument for himself, and Saul's not godly. You cannot help but see the judgment in our country when you consider New York City and New Orleans. Were these not a monument to our sin and to our pride? Think what you may about the means God used. Certainly God's in control of everything, but we all are built in monuments. And you may have not built an actual monument to make your name great, like something you can actually, I don't know, maybe have one in your backyard. I don't know what's going on. What's, you got a monument in the backyard? Certainly isn't my lawn. Um, but uh, you may be using your children to make your name great. You may push them towards academic achievement, athletic achievement, vocational achievement. So you can brag about them. In doing so, lift your own name up. And obviously there's an appropriate way to take pleasure in the accomplishments of your children. But you know what I'm talking about. Especially your mothers. I have to tell you that I've been repulsed by some men at the gathering of Christian leaders. Some of these guys name drop like it's no one's business. One guy, pretty esteemed pastor. I like him, but this was pretty repulsive. One guy uh, that I was talking to referred to a well-known Christian leader by his first name like they were like BFFs, like they're best buds, right? They've been pen pals since kindergarten or something. And I happen to know that this isn't the case. But he was connecting himself to others, and that was one of many names which was dropped in that short period of time. But he was connecting himself and others uh, to like say, hey, I'm, I'm really important. I'm a big to-do. But look, we're, we're no different. Not me, not you. We all are trying to build monuments in our own way. And we have to tear them down, right? See them and tear them down, build God's kingdom, and look for his rewards. Fear God. Want, want, you, know, you want God to know you, not, not men. Listen to the words of Saul in verse 13. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commands of God. Spiritually sounding speech is easy to manufacture, and Christianese is often used as a cover and veil for all sorts of disobedience. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I was led by God, right? That's an excuse for everything. You know, well, I know the Bible, I can't really back it up from the Bible, but the Spirit's led me, the Spirit's told me. And it's funny, like, I used to think that was just like a crazy, charismatic, shake-and-bake, Pentecostal sort of thing, but it's just Christians, Christians use it regardless of their theology in that area. God's always leading them to do things that Scripture can't justify. It's strange. You would think that God would have put that down in the Bible. Um, so he's using Christianese. Blessed are you, Lord. He's a spiritual-sounding guy. And it's hard to know if Saul here is being purely deceptive or he actually deluded himself into believing his own lies that he obeyed, has obeyed. I don't know. And you can talk yourself into believing some real whoppers. And Saul, without a doubt, had. He hadn't obeyed God. And Samuel does the hard work of waking him, waking him up to reality. And that is hard work. It's no fun to confront people 
um, in their sin. People don't like to see themselves for who they really are. And T.S. Eliot, if you ever read him, he says, humankind cannot bear very much reality. We can't bear too much reality. And you know that when a lot of people are confronted, that more often than not, they will try to wiggle away. They'll try to get away from what's being said. And Samuel, Samuel says, you obeyed God? Oh, yeah? What's with all these sheep and oxen I hear? So you think Samuel's got him caught red-handed. He should just repent, right? But no, immediately he tries to wiggle away by doing two things. First, he uh, blame shifts. Oh, those. Oh, well, the people. The people kept them. Saul shifts it to the people. And then Saul's you know, he's trying to create some distance, um, plausible deniability. You know, like, uh, you know, they, you know, people get excited. They do crazy things. They, they keep sheep and oxen when God says not to. Um, and second, he says, this isn't what you think, though, right? It's not, they're not keeping it for themselves. This is actually like a selfless act. They kept them to worship God, right? They disobeyed God to worship God, to make sacrifices. That's why they have all these sheep and oxen. The, our intentions are good. Look, I... Maybe I didn't do exactly, like, every little jot and tittle, but, you know, I have good intentions. Other than that, you know, we distorted everything. But Samuel won't buy it. He calls out his pride. Um, He said, you used to think of yourself as small, but now you think of yourself as great. And God gave you a command, and you did not keep it. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Note that Samuel says, uh, or calls attention to the sight of the Lord. You can deceive me. You can even deceive yourself. But you cannot deceive the Lord. He sees everything. Everything. That should spur us on to honesty. That should spur us on to, to laying it out. You should rebuke yourself more than anyone else. So stop with the blame shifting. Stop with the excuses. In verse 20 through 22, Saul continues to profess his innocence and repeat that the people are to blame and it was done to honor God through sacrifice. He's trying to minimize his sin and maximize his righteousness. And this is something that we all do in one way or another. And again, Samuel's not buying it. And here we get those amazing words. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed uh, than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. God is not after sacrifice. He wants your heart. He wants your obedience from your heart. That theme is repeated over and over again in Scripture. Hosea 6.6 For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Mark 12 To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? Right there with the great command. Micah 6, 7 through 8. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then lastly, Luke 11. 
Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. So again, this comes up all the time. So why is obedience better than sacrifice? Well, this sort of sacrifice that Saul's doing is an actually an attempt to, to gain independence from God, to stay his own ruler. In a sense, if we sacrifice to God, then we've put him in our debt, is what he's thinking. If we sacrifice for God, he owes us something, or so we think. Sacrifice is a way of, of buying whatever we want to get from God, protection, deliverance, provision, favor, um, or, or permission to sin while at the same time remaining independent from him. So this is what he's doing. He's like, I haven't obeyed you, not perfectly, but I'm offering you sacrifices. Right? That, that means I can sin a little. That means I, I don't have to be perfect in my obedience. God, look at all I've done for you. You owe me. It's only fair, we say. And we demand our goodies from God, but we retain our rights to do what we want with our lives. We just need to make sure that we throw a few sacrifices God's way every once in a while to keep them at bay. And this is the attitude of the sacrifice that Saul personified. Have you done this? Are you doing it now? Are you justifying some sin in your life by taking comfort in some sacrifice you made? Right? Well, my devotions are good, man. I've been sticking to my Bible and the year plan. It's okay to watch this show full of horrendous, terrible things. Are you lustfully looking at joggers and justifying it with your abstaining from internet pornography? Well, at least it's not that, right? I've been good there. I got rid of this or that. Therefore, is this, this, is, this is like better, right? It's, yeah. Are you neglecting to love your wife and justifying it by buying her something she wants? Well, look, I, I've gone out of my way to get this and this for her, and we remodeled the kitchen or whatever, and she's happy, and I'm doing the best I can. I'm ty- too tired to read scripture with her. You're right. I'm I'm doing it. I'm I'm okay. Are you not submitting to your husband and justifying it by obeying God elsewhere? Well, well, I'm really passionate here, so so this makes it okay to disobey there. I guarantee that this is a temptation, if not a reality in your life. We all have similar temptations, though perhaps they manifest themselves in different ways. We're looking for ways to minimize our sins. We all duck and weave and dodge the light of self-knowledge and honesty before God and man. We wear fig leaves like our first parents who hide their shameful sins. And I'll give you a couple other examples. Maybe you're not, maybe you don't do the whole sacrifice thing. I doubt it, but here's some. So, um, so I can switch from a sniper to a shotgun and try to shoot wide. Make us all leave a little convicted today, myself included. Perhaps when, um, perhaps you change the subject and crack jokes if an awkward or threatening subject arrives, Right? This is the way you distance yourself from being convicted. Perhaps you monopolize conversations, feeling silence to keep others at bay, to keep from feeling like, fa- like failures, right? This is the way you keep distance. Perhaps uh, you live or die vicariously with a sports team, right? That's the way you just ignore your sin. You get caught up with this sports team. Maybe one way you, you run from your sin, try to minimize it, not think about it, is uh, you give yourself to watching TV or drinking or, or being a workaholic or some sort of compulsive eating. Maybe you mock or put in a box those who have opinions or problems that threaten your own commitments and behavior. Maybe you just lie outright to look good. 
Or my favorite one, when someone convicts you, you point out how they're a sinner too. Right? All you married people know that one? Like, you've done this. Oh, yeah? Well, you've done this, 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 and this, and this. I see someone's been keeping notes. Right? Um, It's true. It's even worse. That's how I deal with it. Right? It's true. I've done even more sins than one you listed. It's worse than you know. Right? You listed ten. I got a thousand. Right? Now, what number do I need to get it down to before I'm allowed to rebuke you? Do I have to be Jesus himself? Or can I be a sinner just like you and correct you? Is that allowed? Can we correct each other and remain sinners? I think so. And we always are finding ways to not deal with our sins, to dodge and get away. You don't have the right. You're a hypocrite. What, do you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? What were we to do? We were to actually listen to them. Just don't do what they do. He says you should listen to what they teach, but don't, don't act like them. You can learn a lot from a hypocrite. I'm not trying to justify hypocrisy, but I am robbing you of that dodge. You may not use it. You may not. If you do, if you do, you're in sin. There's so many different ways that we try to get away from being convicted, and you see them all. You see them all in Saul. Over and over again, he, he says, I obeyed, I obeyed, I obeyed. But it's partial, and this is nothing but rebellion, and rebellion's terrible. Rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination. Insubordination is an iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. This is as bad as witchcraft. It's a terrible sin in idolatry. We are like idolatrous witches when we harden our hearts against God and justify sin. And like Saul, repeatedly refuse to repent. You're like a witch, a wicked witch. Have you ever, have you ever been part of, of a seance? Have you ever seen like a real one happen? Have you ever seen like a voodoo worship? It's, it's disturbing. It's sick. It's wrong. You can tell. It's, it's like demonic and wicked. And that's what the sin is like. You're like that. We're like that. In verse 20 through 30, it would appear that Saul has repented, but not really. When you get down to verse 30, uh, he said, I've sinned. Okay, that seems good. A confession. But please honor me, and now before the elders of my people and before Israel, go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. I've sinned. Come back and help me save face. I don't want the people to know that the kingdom is being torn from me. Right? It's all about saving face. He's just trying to save face. He wants to look good in people's eyes, not in the Lord's. Now, brethren, I hope this is a fearful, a fearful passage for you. I hope you see yourself and, and quickly repent. We may say something like, we may get all theological, right? Presbyterians, Calvinists. We may, we may find theological ways to duck and get away from conviction. Well, Saul isn't elect. I'm elect. I don't have to worry about ending up like Saul. After all, he who created you will be faithful to keep you unto the day of Christ. Oh, uh, yes, it's true. He will. But God keeps you by you heeding warnings. The elect heed warnings by the power of the Spirit, and therefore... Finish the race set before them. You know the sort of people that don't go off the side of a mountain? You know what those people are? They're the people that actually pay attention to the guardrails and the sign, say, don't, don't go off the mountain, right? <laughs> you, you obey warnings. They're there uh, as real threats. But now the, the elect will keep it, right? So just set yourself elect and obey God, right? Thank God that um, 
He gives you the power of the Spirit to, to heed those warnings. Now, in conclusion, there's another king that sinned and was confronted by a prophet. And unlike Saul, David immediately repented and took full blame for his rebellion. Remember, Nathan comes before David, right, kind of traps him. Gives this whole story about this guy that stole a little ewe lamb. And David's like, this guy needs to be judged. And Nathan does that. You are the man. And David stops. Stopped in his tracks. And he repents. Right? He takes full blame. He doesn't dodge and weave. The, the, the idea that David could be a terrible sinner isn't foreign to him. He's willing to contemplate that. Yep. That could be me, and matter of fact, it is me. I've done this terrible sin. And then he writes this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51, right? Against you and you alone have I sinned. The exact opposite of the, of the millennial victim that is Saul. Millennials have been around for a long time, it turns out. There's a millennial in all of us. And David writes, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. So keep your sacrifices. God demands a broken and contrite heart. Take warning from Saul's example and be quick to emulate King David as you respond to correction. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. As we look at Saul and we look at David, we're reminded that there's only one true king. There's only one king that can rule perfectly, and that is you. And we thank you that you've made a way for us to be brought into your court. Not just as slaves, but as sons and daughters. That we are now a royal priesthood. And that we can offer up our sacrifices of praise to you. We pray now as we close this time of worship, that that's exactly what we do. We would have soft, humble hearts that are quick to repent and quick to praise you for the forgiveness that we have through your gospel. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.